Good morning. My name is Mircea Ayuane. You call me. You can call me Mitch. <laughs> from Romania, from Arad, and uh, I'm a pastor in Logos Baptist Church, Arad, Romania. I'm glad to be here with you in this morning and to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. You will be heard more about me and my ministry in Romania in this afternoon at 5 o'clock at your prayer service. Now, please open your Bible in uh, Galatians chapter 3, page 973 in your pew Bible. We will read from Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. Now then, that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture, foreseeing that God will justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nation be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law, law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance come by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Amen. It was a delight to spend time with Brother Mircea last evening over a meal and to be with Russ and Wilma Carson at the same time. I do urge all of you to come at the 5 o'clock service and get exposed to the great cause of God in Romania. And we trust that his being among us will result in a new burden for this nation and in particular for his ministry. So tonight he will show us pictures, and um, he is going to give us a greeting. He did not know that, but he's learning about it now in in Romanian, so that we can just listen to um, how his people speak. That will be a very brief word, and then he'll tell us what he said to us. While we were coming to the end of our meal last night, I received a call from our sister Joy, Um, who informed me that only five minutes before she called me, her mother went to be with the Lord. It's been a privilege to be close to Joy's family these days, and particularly this week. And even yesterday, I visited with Martha. She was not conscious, but I came very close to her ear and spoke to her words of encouragement, hoping that she might understand them and prayed 
for her. So she went very suddenly. What a blessing it was for me last night to arrive at their home, the, the Meffords' home. And as I was walking up the driveway, listening to a piano, I thought, is this coming from their home? And I looked through the window, and the family was gathered around the piano, and they were singing hymns of worship. And the one that I was listening to as I walked in was, when the saints are called up yonder, I'll be there. And I went in and joined them for a time of worship. And we sang several of the good old hymns, including Great is Thy Faithfulness. Uh, Joy later uh, shared this testimony to all of us who were sitting around the room. She said, I feared this day, and I wondered if I would really have the grace that I knew I would need. But it has come. And she said, I have great peace in my heart right now. Great peace. So it's beautiful to see how God was meeting her in this hour of sorrow. Truly, we who have faith do not sorrow as others who have no hope. So be praying for the family. We're not sure exactly when the funeral will be, but very likely it will be sometime on Wednesday. Now, I trust you're in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to confess to you that I I find this passage not so difficult to understand, but difficult to outline and difficult to present. And I hope that the Lord will make up for my inadequacies today. Let me remind you of the general theme of this epistle, putting it as simply as we can possibly put it. The main thrust is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's Paul's concern. Because the Galatians had been infected by false teachers who were telling them, it's good that you're trusting in Christ. It's good that you believe in salvation by grace. But you need to do more yet. You need to add to this wonderful doctrine the importance of obedience to the law of Moses, especially to the ceremonial law. These Judaizers had terribly confused and distressed the young believers in the Galatian churches. And Paul had to write to solve that problem. And he had much to say in his letter to them about the law and how it was not designed to function and also how it was designed to function. I'm going to do something rather unusual, which I've done before. For those of you who have a hymn book near at hand, would you turn for a moment to the wonderful hymn in our hymn book, hymn 449. Uh, There's a wonderful compendium of theology in this hymn, and I would recommend that you memorize it. And I apologize for those in the overflow room uh, and others who are watching by the Internet. You just have to listen. I'm only going to read one verse. I will tell you, though, as we go on in Galatians, the discerning mind will discover that several of these verses express truths found in this letter from Paul to the churches of Galatia. But so far, so far, after defending his apostolic authority in chapters 1 and 2, and having begun his defense of the true gospel in chapter 3, so far, one could almost summarize the teaching of the Apostle Paul with verse 5. This is what Paul is saying to the churches of Galatia. The law is good. But since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sins to die. And what we're hearing most recently in Galatians chapter 3 is this. And has no power to justify. So we're going to see that again this morning. And I appreciated our brother's reading of the Larger context. He was concerned about uh, being understood. It was wonderful, Brother Mircha. 
Um, we could listen to you all day long because your accent is not only beautiful, but it's very clear. And it was wonderful to hear this passage read. But when we come now this morning to verses 15 through 18, only four verses, I think it's helpful to understand that the Apostle Paul was anticipating an argument that was perhaps already being used among the Galatians, or at least an argument that one would use if he were a Judaizer against Paul. But I don't think it's far-fetched for us to assume that the Apostle Paul knew particulars about what was being taught in the churches of Galatia. After all, he found out, didn't he? If this letter is a response to the heresy being taught in the churches of Galatia, he learned about it somehow, and he learned something about it. And how much he learned, we do not know, but it could well be that he even learned some of the specific arguments and counter-arguments that the Judaizers were using. And here he anticipates them mustering another argument. And in this case, the argument would be this. Okay, Paul, you've been emphasizing often enough now how Abraham was justified by faith. That's fine. But you need to remember, Paul, that that was way, way back in the early history of the Hebrew people. You must remember, Paul, that after 430 years of the people of Israel being in bondage in the land of Egypt and being delivered from it, something very wonderful happened and came to the nation. It was the Mosaic Law. And since it has come later, it becomes the new paradigm, the new arrangement for how salvation comes to God's people. Yes, there is a promise element, but there is also a law element, an obedience element. And Paul, you must be honest and set forth that truth. So, in essence, Paul says, oh, really? Really? Well, let me just remind you that you, in fact, are making my point. The law, the Mosaic law, came centuries after God had already established, and I underscored the word established, established the foundation for salvation. And he established it in such a way that the covenant that he made with Abraham, which has implications for all of history, including those who are gathered here this morning at Heritage Baptist Church and listening by way of Internet, that covenant was ratified. It was ratified by God himself. And a ratified covenant can never, never, never be nullified. So you're wrong, Judaizers, thinking that something can come along later and nullify and make void a covenant that God ratified. That's his argument. And in a sense, it's more of the same, but it's different. And last week I mentioned that the truths in, in epistles, in fact, generally in the Word of God, are not like so many marbles that are dumped on the floor. They're like a piece of fabric. They're woven together. And yet as you look at the fabric and pass it through your hands, you see that the pattern changes. And yet it's all together. And that's what makes it challenging for a pastor, for an exegete, to, to present the development of the argument in a way that is understandable. Generally, Paul is dealing with the same thing, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, that justification is by faith, that men and women and boys and girls are made right in their standing with God through faith, not through works. Generally. 
but more particularly now, he is helping us understand that the argument that the law of God itself, which came much later, has nullified God's covenant with Abraham is a very, very fallacious, that is, false argument. It's bad theology. So I want us to look at that now for a few minutes together. And here's my best attempt at trying to uh, sort it out and divide it up. What we have, I think, is something different in each of the four verses. In verse 15, we have an illustration given. In verse 16, we have some history reviewed. In verse 17, we have a priority established. And in verse 18, we have logic applied. Now, there's nothing brilliant about that, but I think, it's, I think what I'm saying is true. And I'm not saying it's the only way this could be divided up, but it's the way that I've chosen. There's an illustration. It begins with verse 15. To give a human example, says the Apostle Paul, that would be like us saying, could I just talk to you in a down-to-earth way? Could I just show you something that makes sense to us? What is the human example? The human example is simply this. This is the way I would summarize it. Paul is saying, if man-made covenants cannot be annulled or even added to, once they've been ratified, then surely a God-made covenant can't be nullified either or added to. That's, that's all he's saying. Look at the argument. To give you an example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. That's the key phrase. Once it's been ratified, it's been made official. It's been made final. It's been made perfect. It's been made permanent. Once that's done, Paul says, is that, is that not the way covenants work even among men? Well, if they work that way among men, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater, then surely they must work that way with God. And he's absolutely right. And so he's using this illustration which was given to help undo the argument of the Judaizers. But then he immediately reviews some history. He says in verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, that's, that's a statement of fact. That's a historical statement. The promises, God made several promises to Abraham when he entered into that covenant. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then he has this little explanation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it. It's sort of a parenthesis. He says it does not say and to offsprings with an S, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. Now, that who is Christ is very important. And this is Paul's way of reminding his readers in Galatia of what the Bible taught back in Genesis 12 and the other chapters which reiterated this covenant, that God purposely used the word offspring. He did not use the word offsprings. He used the word offspring. It is a collective singular. Why did he do that? And by the way, doesn't that teach us something about the Apostle Paul's view of Scripture? He thinks it's authoritative. He thinks it's significant. He thinks it's really meaningful. He thinks it's divinely purposed that God chose to use the word offspring. Now, why is it a collective singular? That, that simply means that offspring can mean a person or it can mean a group of people. The offspring of it. In fact, dear brothers and sisters, we who believe in Christ are a part of that offspring. I'm jumping way ahead and I'm interpreting, but I don't care. The ultimate reference to the offspring, however, is Jesus Christ. How do you know that? <laughs> because that's what he says. Now, the immediate offspring to Abraham was obviously Isaac. And you remember how he was promised that he would have a child and Abraham wavered in his faith and he listened to his wife and he tried to produce the will of God by human effort through Hagar. But in fact, God purposed all along 
to do the impossible and to give Abraham and Sarah a son. And his name was Isaac. He was the immediate answer to the offspring. But he wasn't the final answer to the offspring. And as we look at the passages in just a moment, I'm going to turn there, I think. He will, uh, we will see that God promised him a land, and he promised him descendants, as many as the stars of the sky, as many as the sands on the seashore, as much as the dust of the earth. And that happened. And there was a great multitude which became the nation of Israel, millions of people. They were, in one sense, his offspring. Most of them weren't his spiritual offspring. But what God was especially referring to According to the Apostle Paul, was the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why in verse 16, it simply and clearly says, who is Christ? You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8? He said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced to see it. What does that mean? That means that even Abraham understood that the offspring was going to be a coming Messiah and Redeemer in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely Abraham didn't think that the totality of that promise made in the covenant was going to be fulfilled simply by millions of people living in a land called Canaan. How could millions of people living in a land called Canaan become a blessing to the whole world? That doesn't make sense. Even that word land has its spiritual fulfillment. And that spiritual fulfillment reaches its ultimate culmination in the renewed earth. Not just the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is typical of the renewed earth. And so Abraham understood some of these things somewhat. We understand them better, especially with the help of Portions of scripture like this. Now, I really hesitate. I'm trying to decide what to do about this. Um, and I'm not supposed to confess things like that in the pulpit. I think I'm just going to give us a very rapid review of the establishment of this covenant. So we're going to go very quickly. And I hope this will sort of wake everybody up if you need to be awakened at all. So would you notice with me, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Here is the first reception of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis 12, 3. I'm just going to very, very rapidly read only a few verses in each of these cases because I want you to see that the historical statement that Paul makes in verse 16 is rooted in, a, in an historical record. Genesis 12 Pastor Mark made reference to this when he preached a few weeks ago. Notice verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, this is the key phrase, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the very first announcement to Abraham of this covenant that God was going to establish with him. But now quickly go to chapter 17 and notice its reiteration in another verse 4, 17.4, at this time, Abraham is 99 years old. He still doesn't have that promised seed, that promised offspring. Verse 4, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And then later in verse 7, he makes it clear that that covenant was going to be uh, an everlasting covenant. It had eternal implications. So it's reiterated. Then if you go over to chapter 22, and notice real quickly with me verse 18, 22, 18. This was shortly after God interrupted uh, Abraham in slaying his son Isaac. He says to Abraham, I, I guess I should... Start with verse 17. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That includes the United States of America and Romania. The reason why we are believers this morning is because God established a covenant 
with Abraham that had global, worldwide, redemptive purposes. So you see, it's it's reiterated. But then I would have you notice a reference to it back in chapter 18, because he's not really talking to Abraham at this time. Notice chapter 18 and verse 18. 18, 18. This was just before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Seeing and, and God is speaking now. God is speaking to the the angels, the men who were with him, who were going to bring down this judgment. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Actually, it's a question, but I just want you to see that it is referred to. And then what happens is that this covenant is renewed in the person of Isaac later. And here I'll choose not to turn to the text. And it is renewed even again in Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And I'll just mention this in chapter 28 and verses 13 and 14. And that's really the solution to a problem that many find with the 430 years. It seems like from the time of Abraham to the giving of the law was 645 years. But if you go from the time that this covenant was reaffirmed with Jacob, and you always think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, patriarchs. When it was renewed with Jacob, there were only 430 years before the law was given. That's something of the covenant that was established by God with Abraham. So there's the history reviewed in verse 16. Now, very quickly in verse 17, we have what I call a priority established. Look at verse 17. So if you kind of skip the parentheses there, and I'll start with the first part of verse 16, I'm going to skip the parentheses and go to verse 17. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. This, verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified, ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What is he saying? He's just showing the priority of the Abrahamic covenant. He said, look, this was established centuries before the law came. It has priority. It has been ratified. Nothing coming later can nullify it or make it void. And so he establishes that priority issue in verse 17. And then finally in verse 18, we have what I'm calling logic applied. See if you see the logic of verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. Do you have to be a rocket science to see what Paul is saying? If the now what is the inheritance? Well, the inheritance is what God promised to Abraham, which includes us. The inheritance is salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come and live and die so that we might be justified through his work and so that we might be adopted into the family of God and so that someday all of the Martha Meffords who go to heaven will have their bodies gloriously raised, their perfected souls rejoined, the cosmos cleansed and purified, new heavens and a new earth descend, wherein dwells righteousness and an eternal bliss of living with God on the renewed earth. That's the inheritance. You're a part of the inheritance if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, he says, would you just think logically for a moment? Would you follow my logical argument? If the inheritance comes by the law, that is, through obeying the Mosaic law, that's how you get the favor of God, then it's no longer by promise, is it? See, in this little section of Scripture, the contrast is between 
Law and promise, law and promise, law and promise. What we had last week, the contrast was between law and faith, law and faith, law and faith. And they're really not different arguments. Because the promise is rooted, the faith, I should say, is rooted in the promise. And Paul's just saying, really? Let me see if I can figure this out. Somehow getting saved by obeying the law is getting saved by faith and a promise? I don't think so. No. No, they're incompatible. Law and promise are incompatible with regard to salvation. Listen to me carefully. One of the things that, you know, we need to be sure about is that we're not seeing here Paul saying, you know what, I'm going to show you two things that are enemies. Um, The promises of God and the law of God, uh, they're just really in conflict with each other. And really, the law is bad. (laughs) Who gave the law? God gave the law and he made a mistake? It was bad? No, no, no. The law is not bad. The law is good. I just referred you to a hymn that says that. And it says that on biblical warrant. The law is good. And Paul is going to show us the real meaning and purpose of the Mosaic law in the context of redemptive history next week. And Pastor Mark will help us with that. The the promises of God upon which we should build our faith are not at odds with the law of God. Here's where the problem comes in. The Judaizers come along and make the law of God perform a function that it was never designed to do. There's the problem. The problem's not with the law. The problem's with the wrong use of the law. And Paul is saying in words that cannot be misunderstood. You cannot be saved by obeying the law. And if he were here today with us, I think he would stand up and say, By the way, I think Pastor Christman helped you see a little bit what I said in last week's passage. Anybody who relies on the law is already under a curse because nobody can keep it perfectly. So how in the world can a law that comes 430 years later end up helping people get saved when nobody can keep it the way it has to be kept in order to be saved? And Paul's just saying, would you just be logical? If we're going to be saved somehow by a law, which I pointed out earlier in this letter, no one can be saved by. But if it could, then it would mean that the inheritance, the promised inheritance, does not come by faith in the promise. It comes by what you do. But he finishes his little logical argument by saying, but, just in case, Just in case you didn't get it, be sure of this. God gave it. What? The promise. The inheritance, I should say. The inheritance. It's already been given. It's already being enjoyed. There's a grammatical significance in the word, the verb that's being used. Something that's already being enjoyed and forever will be enjoyed. God gave it the inheritance to Abraham and all who are in Abraham, if I could just insert that for a moment, by a promise. And since I did, why not take just a moment's excursion and help you see clearly that if you are not in Abraham, you are not in Christ. And obviously the opposite is true. If you're not in Christ... You're not in Abraham. We just look at the way this chapter concludes in verse 29. And that will be preached later with, I'm sure, greater clarity. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You don't become Abraham's offspring by being born to the right parents. You become Abraham's offspring by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I entitled the sermon, for lack of a better title, who is your spiritual father, Abraham or Moses? The obvious answer for those of us who are trusting Christ is Abraham. 
Moses wasn't called to be our spiritual father in the same way. Abraham was. Well, are you in Christ or are you in Abraham? You're in both. And the most important thing is to be in Christ. Abraham's not the Savior. The promise was given to him that there would be an offspring. And it's being in the offspring that makes us Christians. We're in Christ, but in a sense, we can say, Abraham is my spiritual father. Christ is my Savior. Abraham is my spiritual father. That's what the logic is about. Now, why all this emphasis on the impossibility of being saved by our obedience? Why all this emphasis on the impotence of the law? Well, let me answer the way George Whitfield answered the question, uh, why do you always preach on you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be, and I know a lot of you know it. He said, well, I have a simple answer. It's because you must be born again. Why all this emphasis on the impossibility of being saved by our obedience? Because of the impossibility of us being saved by our obedience. And I think a fuller answer would be because we need this repeated emphasis. Why do we need this repeated emphasis? Because of our natural tendency, our proneness, our bent to self-salvation, to self-righteousness, to trusting in our own obedience. That's why I said last week that even in our redeemed natures, our default, that is the thing that we do without even thinking about it. You just kind of like, oh, what am I doing? Is to go back to achieving a God's favor by what we do for him. And what Galatians is all about is it isn't what we do for God that brings us into his favor. It's what God does for us that brings us into his favor. And it's because of this proneness that the Apostle Paul has to sort of pull a, a theological hammer out of his tool chest and just pound away and just keep pounding, don't do this. Quit trusting in your own obedience. It's the obedience of Christ that saves you. Should you be obedient? Yes. But for a whole different reason than trying to find a right standing with God. That's why. So, Let me just put it this way. God's covenant with Abraham, which includes us, has priority over and takes precedence over his covenant with Moses. His covenant with Moses was subservient to his covenant with Abraham. And the covenant that he made with Abraham has has eternal, eternal significance. In a sense, it's actually Christian. Let me read to you what um, John Stott said. If I can find where I put it, here it is. Uh, He was very helpful. He goes like this. God's dealings with Abraham and Moses were based on two different principles. To Abraham, he gave a promise. I will show you a land. I will bless you. But to Moses, he gave the law summarized in the Ten Commandments. These now, now we're going to quote Luther. These two things, comments Luther, that is, the law and the promise, must be diligently distinguished. For in time, in place, and in person, and generally in all other circumstances, they are separate as far asunder as heaven and earth. And then Stott goes on himself to say this. The conclusion to which Paul is leading is that the Christian religion is the religion of Abraham and not Moses, of promise and not law. And then he goes on to say, but be careful. Don't start looking at these two things as enemies of one another. Because, because, There is a positive function and purpose in the history of redemption and even in the ongoing history for the the law of God that came through the Mosaic Covenant. And Pastor Mark will begin dealing with that next week. 
So in our verses, it's the negative thing. He's just saying, no, no, no. It's not by obedience to the law that you get the inheritance. But as if to anticipate, so then the law is not good. Um, Paul, we should just disobey the law. What about personal holiness of life? He says, wait next week, and Pastor Mark will answer that for you. That's what that's what the Apostle Paul says. Okay, now, um, I just want to show you two passages of Scripture, and then I'm turning to application, okay? I want you to just go back with me to Romans chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, and see if this doesn't throw light upon, almost by... <laughs> Almost by saying verbatim the same thing. Romans four thirteen and 14. See how similar this sounds to what he wrote to the Galatians. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That's a beautiful way to put it. Heir of the world did not come through the law. For if it is if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. See the logic? It's the same thing. But then notice verse 15, for the law brings wrath. But Even though it brings wrath, remember this, where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the same law that brings wrath is essential because it is the standard. It is the standard by which God will judge the world and the standard which we fail to meet and therefore come under its curse. So how similar that is. But then one more thing, just go to Acts chapter 13 with me and remember These encouraging words, Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, notice verse 38, this is in the midst of a sermon, 1338, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that this man that through this man, Jesus Christ is who he's been preaching about, through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The work of Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. But wise people don't rely on the law that curses. Wise people flee to the perfect law keeper. All right. So what is all this really saying to us at Heritage Baptist Church? That's the question, isn't it? That's the question. Because surely we're not making the mistake of the Galatians. Is there anybody here foolish enough to think that, um, well, the New Testament uh, right of baptism will is the one thing you need to really get you saved. Uh, you're, you're doing well when you trust in Christ alone and turn from your sins and cast your soul upon him with the understanding that he died to propitiate the wrath of God for all who would trust him. He made a perfect atonement. That's great. Trust in him with all of your heart, but remember, you're not fully saved until you're baptized. Is that what Heritage Baptist Church is struggling with? I doubt that very much. Well, then, does Galatians have anything to say to us? Does this passage have anything to say to us? It does. It does. Given our proneness, given our tendency, given our default mode of going back to a works righteousness, subtly and secretly and often unconsciously, a returning to self-righteousness, which is rooted in pride and unbelief, a falling back on 
a doctrine of justification, which is Christ plus, it's Jesus plus. Let me ask you a few questions, because maybe you're still not persuaded that you fall into that. Well, uh, let me ask you this question. First of all, what is the focus of your Christian life? That will help you know whether or not you have a proneness to fall into the Galatian error, okay? We've all agreed we don't, we don't sin the way the Galatians sinned in their uh, works righteousness. That, that's culturally a little different. But the question is, do we have our own way of subconsciously relying upon, hoping in, finding encouragement from um, the little contribution that we make in addition to what Jesus did for us? And I think one way to determine that is to answer questions like I'm asking you now. One, what is the focus of your Christian life? Is it promise or law? I didn't say choose between one or the other. We love the law of God. I'm asking you, what is your focus? Remember, the promise embraced by faith is foundational. God's law and its wonderful work in our lives is subservient. It's there. It's important. But it's not the foundation. The foundation is the promise. The law is subservient to that. Maybe you're still saying, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Pastor Ted, what you mean. i I don't really know how to figure out for sure what my focus is. Then let me ask you this question. What is the dominant emotion of your life? Now, you can be self-analytic about that. What is your dominant emotion? And just most of the time. Is it guilt? Is it discouragement? Is it self-degradation and self-condemnation? Is the dominant emotion of your life depression, being downtrodden, being downcast, living with a sense of condemnation? Not so much, I know I'm going to go to hell and I, the wrath of God has not been removed from my head. Not that kind of condemnation. More like, God is so displeased with me. He's so displeased with me. He's just so displeased with me. I'm, you live that way? Is that the dominant emotion of your life? Or is the dominant emotion of your life joy and gratitude and peace and a sense of acceptance with God and a sense of delight in your relationship with Him, a sense of happiness and a sense of hope? Do people look at you and watch your life in general and say, man, I wish I was like that lady. Man, I'd like to be more like that guy. I wish I could be that happy. And I'm not talking about a silly, frivolous, shallow, worldly kind of happiness rooted in unbelief and oblivion to reality. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real happiness. How can we not be fundamentally and primarily and dominantly happy people? And fearless people. I told this before, and I'm going to tell it at the risk of embarrassing Derek for just one moment, but when he had to go through the surgery the last time to to have the tube replaced, I think, um, and I know some of you heard this, I'm not losing my mind that far yet, but when the doctor met with him, he said, I've got to tell you the risks, and this is life-threatening, three ways you could die in this process. I won't mention the three ways. I said, Derek, were you were you afraid? He said, no. I said, why? He said, well, first of all, because I have been through this procedure, but most importantly, this is why. No condemnation. That's what he said. No condemnation. And he was not plagued with fear. That's only one of the emotions. The emotion of peace. The emotion of confidence. That in this world all is well because I am right with God and his providence is on my side even if he takes me home. What is the dominant emotion of your life? Could I just help you again like I tried to help last week in regard to your relationship to the law of God? And I'm deviating a little bit here, but I think the council is wise and 
I trust encouraging. Let me help you with your relationship to God's law. First of all, legally and practically. Legally, you know what your relationship to God's law is. It's been fulfilled for you by Christ. You are not under its condemnation, and it will not meet you in the day of judgment. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. That's the confession of a true believer. But that's just your relationship to the law legally. What about your relationship to the law practically? What is its function in your life? Well, its function is to come along and say, hey, you're not like Christ in this way and that way and the other way and the other way. Because what made our Savior such a perfect Savior with regard to giving us a perfect righteousness was his perfect obedience to the moral law of God. And his goal is to make us like him morally. And so sanctification is the process of changing our lives. And the law of God has a very gracious function and purpose in our life. It comes along and it shows us wherein we fall short of conformity to the image of Christ. But that's a gracious function. It no longer brings wrath like we read about in Romans 4, verse 15. It no longer kills. It no longer condemns. But what it does is it reveals and it points. It reveals and it points. It reveals stuff that we need to be working on, and it sends us again and again to our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how we should go about attacking sin in our lives. And I do want to say this. The law does not provide the power that we need to change our lives, but it does provide the perception that we need. And our hymn that I quoted again says it has no power to justify. The law has no power to sanctify in and of itself, but it's an instrument in the hand of God for our good. But don't be satisfied just to let the law reveal. Make sure that the law also points. And that's why I said to the sister, A couple of weeks ago, when you feel condemned because the law of God shows you your failure, thank God for that. You can talk to the law. Don't talk angrily with the law. You can say, thank you for long ago sending me with fear and trembling to my Savior. You no longer have a word of condemnation to speak to me. But now I thank you for pointing out areas in my life that need to be conformed to the image of Christ. I thank you for that. But law you know well that you have no power to actually change me on the inside. And so again, I turn to my Savior, who has paid for my sins. And I began by thanking him. So whatever the case may be, I was talking to Pastor Mark yesterday, and he was sick in bed. Um, But we had such an edifying discussion about this passage. And we were talking about it. And he said to me, it's like... um, Job 31.1. Some of you men know that verse, and if you don't, you should know it. Job said he made a covenant with his eyes that he would not look upon a maid because he didn't want to lust. And that's a great passage to memorize. And when you find yourselves, men, looking upon women with lust, you should say, no, 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 eyes. You and I agreed we're not going to do that because that's not good and that doesn't help me and that just stirs me up. No. Okay, that's great. That's great. That's a good verse to memorize, and that's, that's a good resolve. But that, that law that says you shall not commit adultery even by your imagination doesn't keep you from committing adultery. So you thank God for the revelation. You thank God that your sin of lust has been paid for if you've already lost it. God, I'm sorry. That was wrong. I hate it. Thank you, Jesus, for paying for that. And then you contemplate the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God toward you in providing a payment for that sin. And you find your heart beginning to be melted with gratitude. And you try to fall more deeply in love with this gracious, merciful God who has done that for you. And then you say to yourself, the pleasure of God's favor is a thousand times superior to the pleasure of indulging that lust. I'm not going to do it. It just leaves me with guilt. But pleasing my Redeemer fills me with joy. 
It's a form of Christian hedonism, actually. And then you ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. But it is the gospel that motivates you to fight successfully against that sin. The law reveals, and it points you to a Savior and to a gracious God. And ladies, the same is true with regard to any peculiar sins that you may face as women. And maybe it's the difficulty of being submissive to your husband and insubordination. Maybe it's gossiping, talking too freely about other people. You have to go through the same process. Let the law reveal and convict and turn, but turn to Jesus and think about the kindness of God and the mercy of God toward you in providing a Savior and in providing the Holy Spirit. Let's not forget, you know, the the beautiful person of the Trinity that has not yet been uh, hugely focused on is God the Holy Spirit. He he enters the scene in chapter 3 when Paul says, how did you get the Spirit of God, by works of the law or by faith? So he's been introduced three times already there. And then in last week's passage, the fourth time in verse 14, we received the promised Spirit through faith. And we're going to see more of the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're going to be told to walk in the Spirit, not fulfilling the desires of the flesh. But we can do that because it has been purchased for us by the offspring of Abraham, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And you high schoolers, the same thing is true with you as you face your unique temptations and sins. That is, if you're Christians at all, trying to find your acceptance through a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Some of you know that's what you're doing. You have this deep need. Some of it's from God, but the excess of it, the excess of it is not from God. Because God also wants you to wait and say, I don't need to be romantic yet. That's way too early. I'm nowhere near ready to be getting married. All that's going to lead me to is lust. And it's going to lead me to an affection that just keeps pushing the boundaries out and out and out and out until you'll be giving your body to someone else. The body that supposedly was redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ? What is that sin rooted in? It's rooted in not finding your greatest satisfaction in pleasing God. The God who redeemed you, if indeed you are redeemed. If you're not, then you're just an idolater. And the God before whom you bow every day is you. So we need, we need gospel motives and strength to fight against our sin. I need to conclude. So I'm just going to leave you with this. There's so many other things that I really wanted to say, but I can't. Bunyan wrote a poem, and in this poem, he put it this way. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The gospel says to all of us, dear people, that merely by faith we can come into the favor of God. And I wish that all of you will do that. And that all of us who are Christians will renew that today. Just in case you don't understand the gospel, this is it. This is it. We all have sinned thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times against the God who created us. And we're in big trouble with his justice. Those sins have to be punished. And they're either going to be punished in us or in a substitute. And the only substitute that God will accept is his own son. Jesus died to take the wrath that our sins deserve. And he took that on the cross. And the promise, the good news of the gospel is that the moment, the moment that we turn from our sins in true godly sorrow and look to him and his perfect obedience to the law, that second, all of our sins go to him and all of his righteousness comes to us. And God pronounces us righteous. 
That's yours. Those are the wings by which you can fly to Christ. Just believe upon him and out of that faith call upon him and you will be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Help us to understand it better. Those portions which we do not adequately understand, help us to come to an understanding so that we might better live and work them out. Thank you for the wonderful work, Lord Jesus, that you have done on our behalf. Thank you, God, for establishing a covenant with Abraham millennia ago that still has abiding significance for us. Thank you that we are here today because you promised an offspring in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to Abraham. And Jesus Christ is our hope. Thank you. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.